You're listening to the Curator Salon. I'm Geeta Joshi, and today my guest is Gina Soden. Welcome, Gina. Hello, Geeta. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for making time for this podcast. No, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. So we met at your show at Charlie Smith Gallery, which is still currently on. Should we talk a bit more about that? You're showing alongside Danny Tracy and Michael Boffey. How did that show come together? So um, it was a meeting with uh, Xavier Ellis uh, that started it all. And I brought one of my mirror pieces along uh, to his gallery. And I think he just, and I was literally just showing him the work. I just wanted to show him what I'd been up to. There was no sort of pretense of a show at all. It was just wanted to show this amazing gallerist my work. And he basically just took a, a few minutes and then he kind of went quiet. And it was this sort of moment of, oh God, what have I done? And then he said, you know what, this would work really well in the show with, and then he mentioned Danny Treacy. And it was just this amazing moment of, what? I think I've just walked into this gallery and I think he wants to put a show together. And then it kind of, it took about, uh, I think, six months um, to sort of figure out who was going to be in the show. And and then Michael Boffey was um, another um, shortlist artist. And it kind of just happened like that. It was quite organic and natural. And yeah, it was, yeah, very, feel very privileged and lucky and happy. Yeah. Fantastic. Did you have quite a bit of uh, work at that time to show him or did you then have to go and produce work for the show? No, so yeah, I had a few pieces, but they were mostly on copper and marble and aluminium. So they weren't mirror pieces. I had about three or four in my studio, but notoriously they're a lot more difficult to make. So he came to my studio and said, right, I, I want those three in the show, definitely. And then from there, I was like, right, I've got about four or five weeks or maybe a bit longer to make the rest. So it was quite a a frenzy because um, they pushed the show back to March instead of May. So it was like this time reduction. It was just crazy, but um, managed to get it done. Amazing. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Really appreciate that. Um, It's uh, like a a real sort of crazy mix. And I think uh, when I first envisioned what it would look like, I think I kind of had no idea what the other artists were producing, but it kind of just worked out really well. So yeah, um, we all just concentrated on our own thing. And then Xavier just tied it together so nicely and curated it really well. So one of the common denominators across that exhibition is all the artists are working in a very sort of process-led practice. So let's talk about yours, particularly with mirrors. How was that sort of applying what you've been traditionally printing on you know large format photographs onto this other surface yeah it was um, a complete change and very challenging and frustrating I think I gave you a little glimpse of it when uh, you came to the private view so normal normally my previous work is um, large format digital prints and you know I, I go into the abandoned buildings and photograph them and then print them and they're like perfect digital prints there's no errors or banding or any holes in the print and then uh, so it was very difficult for me to transition from that perfection I don't mean in terms of me I mean in terms of the process because once you send a print digitally it will just print it and it's fine it's perfect there's nothing wrong with it most of the time of you know colors and stuff aside but then this was a whole new ball game and it was really difficult so I'd been kind of used to printing on copper and aluminium 
and because it's um and also they're a bit more porous so you know there's still you know not a porous material compared to paper but mirrors just have this sort of barrier that you, know, you shouldn't be uh, transferring this stuff onto the top of it and it's very hard to sort of make it stick and it's such a fragile thin material so basically what I'm doing is kind of printing on like a type of acetate and then using a special glue mix which when you push the print down it receives the ink from the acetate and it sticks it to the work but also that makes the top layer very sticky and it's easy to attract dust so I had to figure out a way of sort of washing the print without washing the print off so it's a very fragile very difficult process and um, you know I, I nearly gave up at one point but I, I'm so glad I persevered because it's um, yeah I think just a a print of an abandoned mirror, a mirror on buildings. I think it just gives it this different original edge and just looks, it, you have to spend time with the work and move around to get the best sort of view of it. Whereas the normal photographs are a bit easy, you know, it's impact right in your face and it's there for you. Whereas the mirrors, you have to work a bit harder. So yeah, I think it was a nice, a nice sort of departure for me. What made you choose mirrors? So mirrors because I did like reflective quality and it's also much more challenging. I like to obviously um, really make things difficult for myself. <laughs> and also the fact that the copper and the aluminium was wonderful because I could pre-age it and I could accelerate that aging. But with the mirrors, you, you can't really do that unless you take the back off and destroy the silver and then re-put it back on. But that's that's a lot of hassle for something that necessarily wouldn't work. So I liked actually buying the antique mirrors, which already had been aged. And there was something about the character of these antique mirrors. And actually the buying of the mirrors was kind of half the fun and the creative process. So um, I'm kind of like DIY crafting stuff for my wedding actually at the moment. And buying the stuff is just as much fun as actually making it. So yeah, I think there's some joy in you know researching and scavenging and finding things for me as well so did you have to did you try on different mirror surfaces before you actually chose you know actually applied the artwork to the final mirrors that you were chosen so did you like yes. have experimental pieces yeah sometimes I had smaller mirrors that I'd test little bits on but most of the time I just went in for the mirror I wanted to use but luckily the mirrors uh, if I did make a mistake I have actually documented this in my Instagram stories that if I made a mistake, I could scrub it off. But sometimes that could take an hour of scrubbing because this material isn't meant to be scrubbed off and it's, you know, very difficult. So I got the old Silip Bang out and uh, some horrible chemicals and a gas mask <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, I could uh, scrub away at it. But so if I did make a mistake, it was very frustrating because it could, you know, it would maybe be, an hour or two until I could start on the piece again. So when did you start photographing buildings? Um, so I started photographing them in about 2010 and it was much more about the adventure and sneaking in and you know the illicit side of things then. It was uh, quite a sort of a social experiment and I'd hang around with different groups of people and sneak into all these places and go on like long long road trips whereas now it's become a bit more of a sort of solo effort I do go with some friends, but it tends to be the same group of people. So I've kind of found my tribe now, you know, people that will have your back and 
people that are good at climbing into certain places uh, so I'm actually not that great at heights which is quite hilarious for the job I do <laughs> so um, yeah it's uh, it's kind of changed over the years and uh, but yeah I'm a lot more inclined to go solo now or get permission for the buildings as I've found my work's been shown in different places or um, it's more prominently shown in certain galleries and stuff I, I think I'm trying to keep the illicit side a bit more low-key and yeah I'm, I'm a lot more inclined to get permission for places now so yeah so for people that are not familiar with your work it's usually sort of grand buildings or buildings that were once grand that have been left to become dilapidated becoming in a state of disrepair usually abandoned so how do you research where they are so yeah, that's um, a huge chunk of my work actually. So um, I start on Google Maps and um, if I go to a certain town and, and I know something's there already from previous photos or tip off from a friend, I'll start scanning around the town looking for holes in the roof or actually another great source I've been I've discovered recently is like um, using postcards. So postcards of that town and it shows a building that was once like amazingly grand and you can sometimes see these postcards and say oh wow you know that looks amazing and then you actually find that that building's now been either demolished which is heartbreaking <laughs> or it's um you know in a current state of disrepair yeah i tend to sort of google that town name and postcards or i look in local newspapers and also i've got a lot of friends now in different countries so we give each other tips which can save a lot of time because certain buildings it can take me six hours to maybe just find the country it's in you know or six hours to find the area of the country and then from there it, you know it's like a needle in a haystack it's it's very very long unforgiving work so that's just a small segment of you know uh, what it is because once you go down that rabbit hole of the internet it's really hard to get back out again and I sort of I forget to eat <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's quite a ridiculous process but um, I love it it's kind of addictive. So do you actually when you're researching the buildings and you say you find this postcard are you able to find online sort of some archive of it and things like that as well to sort of get a sense of what it would have looked like originally so you know it's sort of in your it's got a certain aesthetic that it's worth you actually taking the time to head out there? Yeah, so um, some postcards, it's normally just sort of one view of a building and it's very little. Uh, the building hasn't been documented in a huge way, so you might only see one room. So from that, I try and, you know, discover the rest of the building. But they don't always say where the building is. They might just sort of say the town. So that's when I'm finding new locations for me, but that's already if I know something's in the town already. But um Finding a building from a picture that exists online, for example, people who do like ghost hunting and geocaching. I don't know if you've heard of geocaching at all. So uh, geocaching is um, where people put sort of small items that have uh, coordinates inside and it folds up into a little ball and they place it in these sort of areas. And basically families or, you know, friends or couples go out for long walks and then they come across these geocache uh, points and then you just log on the internet that you found it in a particular spot near that area so but then sometimes people upload photos of where they found it and sometimes it's near an abandoned building so it means I've got a spot added to my map which is great but um you know it's it can be quite difficult to log all of these places and literally you don't know what's inside that building so it's kind of a 
a chance um you know you haven't got a clue what's in there and you might waste an hour getting in but it's worth giving it a try have you ever turned up anywhere and it's just like totally rubbish and it's just like wasn't worth your time that's happened to me far too many times yeah unfortunately so it's another reason why I have contacts around the world because it can just save me so much time and nowadays you know I'm lucky I can do this as my full-time job so time to me is very precious nowadays um, because you know when I go on these trips I don't have time to be you know trying to find 10 you know uh, exploring 10 buildings in a day and then only one of them's great I kind of need to know that they're they're looking good already so it's why I tend to have contacts who can give me tip-offs or they they know a place is good already and then you know we help each other so if they come to the UK I can help them with any latest spots that have cropped up so yeah it's very handy Um, So I do prefer the grand sort of palatial buildings, but then again, I do love old psychiatric hospitals as well, just because I'm quite attracted to the macabre side of things and that the sort of dark and mysterious has always sort of drawn me in. But Italy is always such a a great place for the both of those. So I I kind of make my yearly pilgrimages to Italy now um, because it's, it covers such a wide um, breadth of places. And, you know, I tend to sort of shoot places as they come up because some places were sealed the year before or they started work like renovation on the building. And then you go back the next year and renovation stalled and they've left it to be abandoned and it's, you know, nature's taken over again. So some buildings go through different phases. And I think, yeah, I, I tend to just, shoot what I see and then collate the images later but yeah I, I do love the grand palatial villas and you know palaces that, and the more decay the better and the less graffiti the better so yeah I'm quite I'm kind of quite I know what I want now I'm quite picky the places that are really trashed and have no objects inside and it's weird it goes from a state of being empty and boring but then 20 years 10 20 years later it's completely covered in ivy and looks amazing so the transitional stage in between doesn't interest me so much but when it's sort of just freshly decayed and there's still frescoes on the wall it's amazing and then also it's amazing when it's like 20 years down the line and there's like ivy growing in through the walls and stuff but the in-between stage when it's empty and there's nothing there it's a bit not so interesting to me. Could you consider your work documenting i do in a way yeah because i think i think some of these buildings are not around anymore and you know like battersea power station was uh, is one sort of key building so the control room may not look like that anymore it might be turned into a michelin star restaurant so the photograph i've got of it i guess it's documenting it in a way but the photos aren't really in a documentary style i'd say it's a bit more they're less sort of distance looking, you know, I'm really focusing on the architecture and the beauty and trying to tie those two together. It's, it's not so, I, I feel terrible to say this because, uh, you know, documentary photography isn't sort of like snap happy, but it's perhaps less considered composition wise. It's more, you know, it's quick. Whereas my work, uh, the photographs take at least uh, five to 10 minutes each time to set up the composition until I'm happy or I wait for the the sun to go in or to come out dependent on the you know the building I'm photographing whether I want light rays in or whether I want shadows on the floor 
So yeah, I think it's a lot more time consuming and considered. So I'm kind of in and out that box, <laughs> dependent on dependent on the location. So how many images do you take or what percentage do you actually sort of work with at the end when you get back to the studio? I should actually count this, but I'm pretty sure it's less than, you know, 5%. It's a very small number. So, for example, the Italy trip I went on recently, I think I shot maybe over 2,000 images. Uh, But then I'd have to divide that number by three or five, dependent on the brackets. So per photo, I shoot three to five different exposures. So, you know, my maths is terrible, but basically... I could have around 300 to 500 images per sort of trip. But then I might only and say that's divided by like 10 locations or more. You know, I might only have 30 to 50 images per trip, if that makes sense. And then I tend to only use one image per building. So it's very rare that I'll present more than one image per building. It's like um, basically some rooms are much more impressive than others and I know most people don't know that it's from the same building but because I know and I want it to be a very impactful shot I tend to just stick to one image and it's normally um, you know something that depicts decay and it's quite grand and uh, you know tells a story so yeah I think uh, basically hardly any (laughs) so I've got so many images on my hard drive that are just sitting there and like the buildings, I feel like they're rotten away and I need to do something with them. But what is the, is the key question? Yeah. What kind of issues do you face when you're trying to get into buildings where you're not supposed to be? So I went to Italy about two years ago with my French friend and my fiancé. And we had a fantastic trip up until that point. And there was this villa that I couldn't get into two years in a row previously with um, two other friends. And we sort of, uh, you know, slumped off to the nearest pizza place and were like really depressed and annoyed because we couldn't get in. So then I was like, right, I have to get in this building. I've got to do it. So I went with my fiance and my French friend. We decided, so it's in this, it's a huge villa and it's got lots of farmland around it. And there was like loads of houses overlooking the land. So, you know, you're going to be probably seen by someone, but hopefully they don't really care because it is this abandoned building well we kind of thought that so we um basically went through yeah that's it um we were approaching the side road and all the walls around it are really tall and very sort of impenetrable very difficult and then I thought right well we could try climbing the wall or we could just keep walking and I saw this uh side gate that was open I was like oh my god fantastic so because it was open and we were right there. I said, right, let's go. And I, I was just spontaneous. said, we've just got to go. And we slipped in and all the doors and windows to the villa were open. And it was just stunning. This place is, is you know, the frescoes everywhere. It's incredible. Beautiful red ivy overgrowing all these corridors. And then strangely, like loads of stair, uh, chairs stacked up in the window. It's almost like the person who had bought it or had you know abandoned it many many years ago had stacked all these chairs up to either keep them out of the way or to stop people coming in through the windows maybe it was a bit strange anyway so I didn't really think much of it and I was shooting away and then I went upstairs into the corridor and I heard a gate being pulled to I was like oh okay I wonder what that is and I looked over the edge and there was a farmer it looked like he looked like a farmer and he was in the sort of corridor and um area and I was like oh my god 
and I, I had no idea, you know, that I, necess- I didn't necessarily know who it was. So I, I still panicked. Anyway, so I thought, right, we've got to get out. And then the, we, we got out into the courtyards and the gate he'd closed was like really tall. It was about uh, 10, 12 foot tall. So it was very difficult to climb over. So this person had shut the gate. And that was our only way in and out. <laughs> so um, it actually took us two hours to get out because we tried climbing over the tall um, brick walls, but they were covered in ivy and barbed wire and spikes and thorns. And it's impossible. Mike and the my French friend, they found like this refrigerator and loads of stuff blocking up this doorway. And it took us about an hour and a half to move all of this stuff. And it was like, you can imagine this Benny Hill music, you know, and uh, if we'd sped it up, it would have been a brilliant video. <laughs> but we were like moving all this stuff by the door and just trying to get out. But um, I was really worried. So I sort of stood watch by the doorway where we'd originally got through. And luckily no one came. And uh, we just had to move all this stuff. And we slipped out the back garden because all this stuff was so heavy. And then we just sort of ran across the farmland and got out. Uh, but basically, it turns out the farmer, I found out from my Italian friend, the farmer uses the land and the property as just like a place to store his tools. But he'd also, he, you know, so he also tries to protect the villa, even though it, it, it means nothing to him. It's just the land that's important. So we just had to move all that stuff and get out. But we, yeah, we were kind of like locked in almost. And that was quite a scary moment. But it was all fine. I've got my photos. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> But yeah, that was quite, you know, that could have been a moment where we might have had to call someone to get us out, which would have been very embarrassing. Oh my goodness. (laughs) We've had adventures like this all over the country and um, in different countries, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the UK, it's always quite a lot more, you know, highly likely that I get caught more often because the security here, they're a lot more on it. There's been a rise of people doing it for sort of YouTube hits and doing a lot more riskier stunts like climbing cranes and stuff in London. So it makes it harder to uh, photograph buildings nowadays So um, in the UK. But uh, that's why I tend to travel abroad as well, because I try to keep away from the hotspots and you know places that are more unknown and more discreet, I think. Yeah, it's a good word to use. Amazing. So do you show with other galleries other than Charlie Smith? So yes, I've shown with um, uh, a few different galleries when I've had my work taken to art fairs like Photo London and Art 13 and London Art Fair. So that's been a really good opportunity to get my work out there. So I'm also uh, showing with Charlie Smith at the moment. I also sell my work directly online, so just via my website and uh, people can get in touch. Um, I I try not to sort of advertise the sizes and prices online because I think it's nice to create that conversation um, straight away. I think if the information is all over my website, it can actually overwhelm people. And I think it's nice when they've met me somewhere and then they have a look online and then they can talk to me via email. I'm, I'm very approachable. It's not scary. It's, I think people can be a bit intimidated by buying art online, but, um, you know, I think things are changing, which is great. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, it's sort of using social media to lead people to your website is like a, a really, you know, it's just a really good process. Like you say, you know, starts conversations, and even starting those conversations on, you know, whether it's Instagram or something, I think is a lot easier for people. Definitely. And I think I've actually got 
a vast majority of my sales have started through Instagram or have been on Instagram just by DM. You know, it's amazing. So I might post something uh, from like an archive image from a series four or five years ago uh, because it tied in with, you know, a recent sale or a recent exhibition. And people were like, oh my God, I love that. And they messaged me and say, have you got any left? And, you know, I think that's amazing that people can do that because I know it's only an extra step to go onto my website and email me, but those two steps in this day and age can make all the difference. So if people feel they can message me directly and just start a conversation that way, then that's absolutely fine. And I think it's brilliant. It's opened up. It's also opened up my world to discovering lots of amazing other artists and people who are doing collaborative projects and, you know, people who are pushing women in the arts. And I think it's just a great conversation uh, starter. I love Instagram. It's great. It's amazing, Gina. Thanks so much for your time. Where can people find you online? So I'm on Instagram as uh, Gina Soden Artist, or one word, and my website is www.ginasoden.co.uk and uh, Facebook, but I don't really tend to use that as much, but I'm on there as Gina Soden, as the artist, uh, sort of hash as the tag. So Gina Soden Artist again. The exhibition Archaeologies is on at Charlie Smith Gallery over at Old Street in East London until the 13th of April. You can follow me on Instagram at the Gita Joshi or visit the website thecuratorsalon.com. Thanks, Gina, so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Gita. Lovely to talk to you. The Curator Salon hopes you enjoyed this production.